I'm so always encouraged to hear how God's Word is working in the lives of people and throughout the community. And uh, I just have to give God honor and praise. And I just want to uh, ask that He blesses this uh, message tonight. And we thank, thank you, Lord, that you have uh, given us your Word and that we can come to proclaim your truth. And I thank you, Lord, that you use all of us in different ways to... Uh, Manifest your glory and praise the Lord. Pray, Lord, that uh, we can hear your word and be able to do it. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Sometimes I think about the uh, first couple jobs that I had out of college and I uh, think about how they were somewhat different, especially in the attitude that I had. Uh, going into each job and kind of how they, they ended up. But the first job that I had outside of college was I worked for, for my fraternity that I was a part of while I was in college. And so I worked for our national headquarters, and it was my responsibility to go and to train up uh, other guys in different chapters all around the country. And, and I just really loved that job. Um, I, that the fraternity when I was in college gave me, uh, had a great impact on my life, and my desire was to try to d- uh, duplicate that and replicate that and impact others in the same way that I felt impacted by that organization. And often when I was traveling, um, if, especially if I traveled by airplane, you know, sometimes it usually came up, so what do you do? I said, I work for a fraternity. Um, and every time I said I worked for a fraternity, people had these different ideas about what that meant. And usually I had to re-educate them about what that meant. It, it wasn't, I'm going to have a party at every place that I go to. Um, it was usually quite the opposite. Um, but I really just just loved the job, really enjoyed working with people. And, and I tried to, everybody that I talked to, I would um, kind of help them think about how a fraternity was actually a good thing, or it could be a good thing. And, and after that job, I took another job. So the first one, I had this zeal and this passion, and I really loved to just communicate with whoever I talked to about it. On my second job out of college, uh, after that job, uh, was I worked for a company doing sales. And really, the reason that I took that job was because my boss was an excellent salesman, and he sold me on what he was selling. Except the problem was, was that I wasn't convinced when I was in that job that the product we were selling was all that great. I mean, in fact, I had a product from a similar company that I had, and I did not tell him because I felt maybe it would, would offend him. But he went on and on and on about how he loved the work he did and, and what he did in the company that he worked for. And I didn't. And after a while... I ended up quitting. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, you know, we should have an attitude that we want to just tell everybody about how great Christ is. Over time, though, maybe our focus gets a little clouded. Maybe we get a little distracted, somewhat disconnected, or even disillusioned. Last Sunday evening, I talked about what the Great Commission was. And how it was the believer's main mission was to go and to make disciples. Now, as a church, we should have that as our common goal. 
But we can't go and make disciples if we are not ourselves sold on God's greatness. So I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And tonight we're going we're gonna to read about and discuss about the reasons and the motivations that the church should proclaim God's greatness. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read in verse 9 in just these two verses. We read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Oh, there are four motivations that the church should proclaim God's greatness. And it's that the believers have been given four things. A new identity, a new function, a new distinction, and a new obligation. Now first I have the assertion that in 1 Peter, that he gives four reasons or four motivations that we should proclaim God's greatness. But in all honesty, nowhere in 1 Peter does he even mention the word church. In fact, nowhere in 2 Peter does he mention the word church. So you may wonder how I'm going to make the assertion that there are four reasons that this church should proclaim God's greatness if he doesn't even mention the word church at all. Now Peter does use in this, this text, he uses the you in the plural sense of the word. And so he's talking to all those that are receiving the letter, not just specific individuals. And the terms that he uses to describe them are not individual or solo, but they're collective. They're as a group or a totality. And in verse 9 he says the recipients are a race, a priesthood, a nation, and a people of God. Now all of these are groups. And these verses follow Peter's plea for these believers to long after the Word of God, which you see in verse 2, to long after it as newborn babes, and to also live holy lives, because as Peter says in verse 5, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And this idea of believers living, being living stones of a spiritual house echoes similar illustrations of the gathering of believers as a house or a household of God. And in this, Peter, or so in this letter, Peter is not addressing one church body, but he is addressing several church bodies. In the opening two verses of the letter, we see that it reads in verse 1 and 2, he says, uh, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And these cities are located in a rig- region that is now modern-day Turkey. And during this time, believers had been dispersed. So it says that they are scattered throughout this area, and they'd been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, specifically due to persecution. 
We'll read about some of that in Acts in various places, that the Jews were starting to experience persecution, and so they scattered. And Peter is now reaching out to these people, many of whom are suffering financially, physically, and in other various ways that come with being persecuted and being relocated. Yeah, they have been richly blessed by God in so many ways. And because of their shared faith in Jesus Christ, they share the same reasons that Peter will describe in our verses to proclaim the greatness of God. Now these truths that Peter claims are universal to every single church, and it applies to the entirety of believers in the world that make up the church. But each church that meets on a local level should draw from these same truths and apply them in the same manner. Now here at Faith Community Church at 669 Arnold Mill Road, the place that we are here right here tonight, you know, we're to do the same thing. And so Peter gives four reasons the church should proclaim God's greatness. And they have been given as a new identity, a new function, a new distinction, a new obligation. So the first thing that Peter describes is a new identity. And Peter uses the phrase, a chosen race, which describes universally as a believer's identity. Now, Peter seems to draw from a couple Old Testament passages in his descriptions that he uses in this, ver- in this verse. And this first one can be seen in Deuteronomy 7.6. Where Moses says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God has chosen those whom he wants to bless with salvation. It communicates God's role in salvation and that he is the shepherd that saves lost sheep. That mission of God that I talked about the first week I preached. And in Deuteronomy, God is describing Israel, who is his chosen race. And remember that God made a covenant with Abraham. And he told him in Genesis 12 too, he said, I will make you a great nation. And he reiterated that in Genesis 17. He said, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. God had decided to set apart one man and his family and establish a a special relationship with them. And the nation of Israel would be God's chosen people. Abraham was called out of Ur to go to a new place where God would bless him And we would make him a great nation, and it would be through Abraham's descendants that the world would be blessed. And for years, the Jews identified themselves as children of Abraham. But now, those that are outside of Abraham can be a part of God's chosen people. Because now, instead of God just blessing one specific ethnic line, God blesses his church. And even though Peter doesn't use the word church, I keep using it because it is very much a part of our vocabulary. But let's pretend for a minute that we have never heard the word used before. 
How would have Jesus how would Jesus's Jesus's disciples have understood it? Well, it was first used the term church was used in Matthew 16 by Jesus. And after a discussion that Jesus was having with his disciples, he said, "Who is it that you think that I am?" And Peter, remember Peter the author of this letter, he replied and he said, You are the Christ. You are the living, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praised him and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus then says, I will also say to you, or I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will establish my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So this is the very first mention that we hear of this word church. But from these verses, all we can understand is that Jesus will build a church. He will build it on a foundation, a rock, and that death or the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus only mentions the church one other time in Matthew 18 when he describes the process that a person is to go to if a brother is in sin or a sister is in sin, an individual is to go to that, that person who has been sinning and confront them. And if that person does not repent from their sin, they're supposed to bring somebody else. And if that person still does not repent, then they are to be brought before the church. A word church is ecclesia, and it means to be called out from. And the term referred to a gathering or assembly for a common purpose. Being called out from might describe people being called out of their homes or out of their businesses for a specific reason. It was often applied to a town meeting or maybe a Jewish congregation. So a church is a group of people who share a similar identity who gather together for one purpose. In Scripture, Ecclesia is almost always translated with the word church. Twice we see it's translated as congregation, but in one instance it is translated as assembly. Turn to Acts 19 for me. We can kind of see what this looks like. Just as we build this idea of what a church is, because it is so a part of the fabric of our thinking and in our culture. But in Acts 19... The word church, ecclesia, is used in kind of a unique way. Now, Paul at this time is in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, the Greek goddess Artemis was widely worshipped. And a man who made idols in the town of Ephesus, he feared that the people who were following God or following Jesus would threaten his business. Because if people were leaving idol worship to worship Jesus Christ, they would no longer need to buy from him. So he gathered other men that made idols, and he caused a big scene. And he stirred up the city against Paul and his companions. And in Acts 19, 32-34, we read, So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the assembly, this is that word ecclesia, So the church was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. 
But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all. As they shouted for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So obviously this is a pagan group that is getting together. We can see why the translators did not translate it as the word church, but it's the same idea that this assembly, this kind of you know, riotous group, this group that is coming together, is used by the same word that we would describe our church. They at this time was an assembly of people that gathered together for one purpose. And in this case, it was to defend their goddess Artemis. Some were gathered there to defend her, but they didn't know why. And a church is a gathering of people together for one common purpose. Ours is to go and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And the church is a gathering of believers to help aid in that. And Peter says that believers should proclaim the excellencies or the greatness of God. And the first reason we're to do that is because we have been chosen. We are special. Now this should just be reason enough to say that God is great. Even though everyone here at the gathering at Faith Community Church may not be a believer and a follower of Christ, the gathering here has as its mission to proclaim God's greatness. Because we know that we were chosen to be a part of His plan of salvation, not based upon anything that we have done or anything that we have learned. And we have not earned it by birthright either. And we can't buy it. It is by God's kindness alone. In Ephesians 2, 8-9, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God." And not of works, so that no man may boast. Now, some people have a problem with this idea that we have been chosen. And it may seem like it would produce arrogance that we have been chosen. But like Paul said, it should not produce arrogance. It should not produce boasting. It should produce praise. Because if you think about it, nobody chooses their race, it is determined for them by their parents. And parents just can't change their children's race because race is something that is passed on to them. But those who follow Jesus are now adopted into God's family. In John 1 we read, But as many received Him, meaning Jesus Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the good news of the gospel because the race that each one of us inherited was that of sin and ultimately suffering. But if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you have a new identity because you have a new father and you are God's child. This is your identity. This is who you are. If you were to show your ID in order to get into heaven, you would have the proper credentials to be with the father. And because this applies to churches everywhere and to the churches of those that contain those that follow Jesus Christ, we could go to any church where there are people following Jesus Christ and we could see others that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We could go to a Baptist church. 
We could go to a Presbyterian church. We could go to a Methodist church or a Lutheran church. And we could call people there. Mind you, not everybody there, but those that follow Jesus Christ as our brothers and sisters in Christ because they too have been chosen by God. We can even go to the charismatic church, call them brothers and sisters. We might call them like crazy Uncle Carl, (laughs) but they're still our family. (laughs) Peter says that the end result of our new identity is we are to proclaim his excellencies and his greatness and all of us collectively. Now, how should our new identity alter our thinking? We should have confidence that because God's spirit resides within us that we can do what he asks of us to do. We don't have to worry about getting rejected because God is our father and God comforts us as we comfort our own children. But not only have we been given a new identity, we've also been given a new function, a new function. Peter uses the term royal priesthood. Peter draws this time from Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. And it's those two verses in Deuteronomy and Exodus that he gets all four of these these, uh, adjectives. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So Peter takes this term, kingdom and priests, and he rebrands the term as a royal priesthood. So it signifies both kingly lineage as well as priestly responsibilities. And the phrase kingdom of priests signify that everyone in Israel was to be devoted to God, that everybody essentially would function as a priest. Well, what does Peter mean by royal Before being saved, the Bible describes that a man is uh, being under the dominion of sin and of Satan. We were in darkness, as Peter later says, and when God chose us, he made us heirs to his promises. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Because Christ is king, and we are now part of his royal lineage. Revelation 5.10 says of believers, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I mean, that alone is just amazing in itself. That we have a connection with, with the king and that we will reign on this earth. And as a chosen race, we are considered kingdom citizens. But we are not described as royal subjects. We are described as royal priests. Well, what is a priestly role? Well, a priest is a person who mediates between God and mankind. Now, because of Jesus, we do not have to go through a priest, but we can go directly to God because of Christ's work on the cross. Each one of us can pray for one another. Each one of us can seek God's face, and each one of us can even direct people to Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And believers act as the mediator between the shepherd and the lost sheep. Now, in the Old Testament, the the priestly class, they had three main duties. Uh, First, the priest was responsible for declaring God's will to the people. And sometimes Moses went into the, the tabernacle, God revealed it directly to him, He revealed it to the people. 
Second, they were responsible for teaching God's law, making sure that they obeyed the law, upheld the law, and that they knew the law. And third, that they served in the tabernacle, helping with Israel's sacrifices and with their worship. And we too have the same responsibilities. We help teach God's commands. We can declare God's will as revealed through His Word. And we can serve in His church. Paul described each believer as being part of a body with Jesus Christ as the head. And we have been gifted in unique ways. Now how we use those gifts might differ. And how different local churches manifest those gifts, they might differ as well. I mean, even the testimony tonight of this church holding a counseling conference differs than the way other churches reach out to the local community and use the gifts that we have been given in the way that Christ has brought certain people into our church and have allowed us to, to have the resources we have in order to reach out and to teach and to instruct and to use the gifts as we've been given. But as followers and individuals that follow Christ, and as royal priests, we are to exercise our gifts to proclaim God's greatness. And often when someone refers to the church, what are they referring to? Is someone talking about the pastor? Maybe it's a bit broader. Maybe somebody's talking about the people on the stage. When somebody says, I really love my church... What are they thinking? And when you invite someone to church, is it coupled with the thought, come to my church because our pastor is great, or because our music is great, or our college ministry is great, or our Bible studies are great? That's often how we think, and that's often how we operate. But it's totally incorrect. Now, great they might be, but that thinking of how we respond to the question is incorrect. That's almost cliche to say that a church is not a building, but the people that are in the building. The church is not a pastor, but it's the people. I want you to know and want you to realize and to remember that you are the church. The people up here on the stage and even you now looking at me declaring my word to you, this word to you from God, that I am not the church. I'm just one person that's a part of the church ministering the gifts that God has given me. But you are are the church. And if you look around, and just remember this morning thinking about this as everyone was praising and singing to God, that I just looked around and said, This is the church that I'm a part of. Even though some people have been given different functions and different roles and have certain visibility that others maybe do not. But the church is all of us. And it varies and it fluctuates. And Peter knew this. They knew that Jesus established something special. He was there that day that that Jesus said, I will establish my church. And so when we think of church, we should think of people. And we should think of the purpose that this church has. Now the church has programs, but it is the programs that a church has that allows the people to exercise their gifts in an organized and focused way. Paul said it well when he said in Ephesians 4, 11-13, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There are those that preach and teach and have higher visibility, but they are given for the specific 
reason to equip the saints, to equip the priests to carry out their priestly duties and their priestly functions. On a local level, the church is to teach and to equip and to proclaim and to encourage, to model and to give and to receive and to exhort in a myriad of other ways that we can use the gifts that God has given us. Now, do you think about these as you think about your responsibilities? Firstly, do you think that about yourself as being royalty? Do you think yourself as being part of a royal class connected with Jesus Christ who will reign and rule on this earth? Because that is something important to know where your future is, to know that what is solidly promised to you in the future. But do you also think of yourself as a priest or a minister here in the local body? Because each follower of Jesus is just that. We no longer have to function as lower class citizens or those unable to access God because we are to embrace our function as royal priests and proclaim God's greatness. With this new function, we can help minister to those who are hurting inside and outside the church. We can sympathize with those who are in slavery to sin. And we can offer hope. We can offer the riches that God offers us. And we can deliver to those who have not been forgiven the one offering they need to atone for their sins, which is Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to a new identity and a new function, we have been given a new distinction. Peter says Jesus' church is a holy nation. Now, the word holy means something that is set apart. And Exodus 19 describes Israel as a holy nation, and Deuteronomy 7, 6 says the Israelites were a holy people. The term holy signifies something or someone that is set apart, but set apart particularly for God's service. We've discussed how we are all to serve, but what are we set apart from and set apart to? Now, as followers of Christ, we are set apart from a lifestyle of sin, And we are set apart, too, to be like Christ and not of the world. We live in this world, but we are not to be identified with it. And we are to stand out from it. Now, Peter implies this later in verse 11 when he describes believers as aliens and strangers. Now, Peter was was literally writing to aliens and strangers that had been dispersed to new lands. But Paul echoes a similar statement in Ephesians 2.19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. We have a heavenly citizenship now. Now While geographically we have a national alliance to the United States of America, and many of us love this country, we have a greater allegiance to God. And if the two were ever to come into conflict... We know right away with whom we are to choose and which side we stand. Now, Israel was a holy nation and a holy people set apart for the surrounding nations. They were to remain steadfast unto God and not to worship other gods. They were supposed to be a light to the surrounding nations and draw those in darkness to God. But oftentimes the reverse happened. And often the Israelites were scolded for following the gods of other nations and worshiping their idols. Now, as followers of Christ, God has sent His holy nation, if we say the universal church, 
everybody everywhere that believes in Jesus Christ and follows him, which is dispersed all throughout this world, that God has sent his holy nation to be scattered amongst the world and to serve as many lights to draw people into this, from the surrounding communities to him. And because of this distinction from the world, and because we have been set apart, we are to proclaim the greatness of God. The way we are to be different is supposed to be something that is attractive. It's not supposed to be repelling. That's why Jesus said we are to be light and we are to be salt. These things attract and they enhance. But used in excess, they can repel And there are some who are in darkness that are turned off by any sense of light. But as we think about how we are holy, this can have a huge implication to how we interact with those who don't follow Jesus. And Peter gives some practical ways to be a light in the community, especially to these aliens and strangers, even if it means enduring wrong and suffering for doing right. So just look a few verses down in verses 13 through 19. And Peter says, Submit yourselves to the Lord for his sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. He says, honor all people and love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward uh, God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Sometimes just suffering in the world and doing what is right will bring not only glory to God, but it will be attractive to those who witness it. I mean, as believers, we might face the same level of persecution someday. But we are not to shrink away from God's desire that we remain holy. And as a church body, we are to use the gifts and the means we've been given to attract others to us. And Jesus never sent his disciples out alone to proclaim the gospel, and Paul often traveled with companions for his mission work. And we should remember, too, that we are to help each other in this mission to proclaim God's greatness. That is one reason we come together as a group to assemble, to spur one or another on to love and good deeds. We are also to use the means that we've been given to not be a hindrance to the gospel I was thinking the other day about uh, a submarine wreck that I heard about. It was like probably 10 or 12 years ago. I think it was in the year 2000. There was a Russian submarine that was sunk uh, just, well, actually, it had an explosion. It was just north of, it was during a training exercise. It was just west of Russia, north of Norway and Finland. And at the bottom lay the submarine. And there were boats from England. And there were boats from Norway that wanted to come and to rescue this sub. But the Russian Navy had prevented them from taking any action. And for four days, they'd made them wait and sit. 
And finally they said, okay, you can go ahead and rescue our sub. And so when they sent the search and rescue team down, they found that the, the hull had been filled with water and that all 118 men aboard had perished. And it was a tragic ending. And I think about that sometimes when we think about how it's possible to be a hindrance for people to come to Christ and come hear His Word. Now, while we will never, let me be clear about this, we will never thwart God's plans. And we will never stop whom He is desiring to choose and whom He is desiring to save. We can be a hindrance. And many people who grew up in the church stop attending in their youth because there is some sort of hypocrisy that they see in the church. Or they go to a church that does not proclaim the glories of God. And we need to make sure that we are not being a hindrance to the gospel. We need to think about how our lives reflect Christ. We need to think about how our church does the same. And again, not just the building, but are we friendly? Are we inviting? Are we supportive of one another in the body? And how do we show the love of Christ differently than the world? Sometimes we don't see our blind spots, but others do. But we've all been given gifts in different measures and in different ways, and there's some that see these things and can help make up for them. And some of us are gifted at telling it like it is. In love, of course. So the way we proclaim God's greatness is not just in the things that we say, but it's also the way we say it and the actions that we have. Because Jesus said that people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Now the fourth and final description Peter uses refers to our obligation. And he says that we are a people for God's own possession. Both Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7, 6 describe the Israelites as God's own possession. And in the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, he says, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Jesus paid for our sins with his blood. That means we are now his. But it also means that we are now secured by him. Because Jesus also said in John 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This can be great confidence to us, especially as we do the work of proclaiming God's greatness. Paul frequently referred to himself as a slave of Christ, and he knew the image that this term carried with it. Jesus said that the gospel sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. But now we are under the allegiance of Jesus Christ. We belong to God, and as such, we are protected, we are cared for, but we are also at His disposal. Now, just as a soldier is fed and clothed and housed, he is under an obligation to the army to fight its battles. A soldier does not have rights to do whatever he or she wants to do. He has obligations. 
and we do too, it is our obligation to proclaim the greatness of God. Now Peter has described that each believer is now part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's own possession. Each follower of Jesus is given a new identity, a new function, a new distinction, and a new obligation. And for what reason? You know, why do we gather each week? It's because, as I've kept saying, is that each of these is so that we will proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That word proclaim is exangelio, which is to declare throughout. It means to speak abroad or to make widely known. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We are to broadcast them over a loudspeaker. We are to advertise them on a billboard. We are to be God's top sales force. And we are to be ambassadors for Him. That's the picture that Peter wanted his recipients to know. That even though that they were being persecuted, and when you are persecuted, the thing that you, you so desire to do is just to be quiet. To shrink away, to not be heard, to not be known, and to run from the pain, to run from the suffering. But Peter says you are to broadcast it. And by broadcasting and making it known that you will actually draw people unto Christ. Now how can we possibly do all this? Peter kind of closes out. He gives like three reasons why, why we're able to, to be you know, kind of like ambassadors for Christ. He says we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We know what it was like to be in darkness. We know what it's like to not know about God's saving truth. We know what it was like to love sin and to be dominated by it. We know what it means to scoff at God's truth. We know what it's like. We know what it's like to be delivered from that. And if we ever doubt the truth that we don't have the knowledge of how to be all the things that God has called us to be in order to proclaim His greatness, His excellencies, then we should think about what it was like before we came to Christ, why we came to Christ, and what it's been like now. Secondly, Peter says that you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. People say you were basically like scattered individuals, like cockroaches running around in the darkness. Scurrying when the lights came on. We weren't a colony. We weren't a pack. We weren't all together. Even though people like to classify believers and unbelievers or churched and unchurched. But that seems to imply that before we were following Christ, we were following something as some collective body. Because we were not all following the same thing. In a way we were, but in many ways we weren't. We were following the same thing We were following ourselves. We had billions of gods we worshipped all throughout this world. And that is all that we worshipped. And now God has made us a people. He has made us a collective body that worships the creator of the universe. The one true God. And as a collective body, we can love others and we can minister to others. And we can support each other and encourage each other in that mission. We can stir one another up to love and good deeds. 
And can we, le- we can leverage our gathering together for those purposes because we are not alone. We are not lone soldiers fighting a battle by ourselves. We have the help of those who are more wise, more gifted, and more experienced. And all of those people are in this room. Finally, Peter says, you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. We can share compassion with those who do not know God's mercy. And it's really a difficult concept to understand how to forgive until you have yourself been forgiven. We have been extended mercy. We have been extended compassion. We have been extended patience by our God. And so we too are to extend that to the other, other people that we minister to. And we are motivated by what Christ has done for us. In fact, we're so motivated that, that by what Christ has done for that is the grounds for what we do for others. You know, anytime Paul or Peter or John exhorts someone to do something, it's always grounded in Christ. Why should a person give? It's because Christ gave. And why should someone love? It was because Christ loved. And why should someone submit? It's because Christ submitted. And we come together in this church to teach these things because that's what the apostles did. And their commands were grounded in the teachings of Jesus Christ. We don't just teach in order to puff everyone up in knowledge to make people Bible brainiacs. But we do so to inform you to action. And the actions we see in Scripture can be implied in many ways. And it's not always concretely applied. If you look at verse 11, Peter says, I want you to abstain from fleshly lusts. And he doesn't specifically apply what that means. He doesn't say, I want you to stay away from pornography, or I want you to stay away from flirtatious co-workers. I don't want you to indulge in alcohol, or I want you to keep from unwholesome speech. All the things that that could possibly mean, fleshly lusts. Because he doesn't limit that because each person has different fleshly lusts. In the same way that Peter does not specify how we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, just as Jesus didn't specify how we are to make disciples. Because Paul explained clearly in 1 Corinthians that Everyone has a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. He says that we're all part of one body. We all have different functions, whether we are visible or invisible, whether we are large or small, and we're all necessary for the working of the body. So how do we do this here in the church at Faith Community Church? I was really surprised when I went on the church's website 
I guess I'm not so surprised, but when I went on the church's website to see kind of what the, um, when you're reading the about the church section, this is what the church says, that we are a community of believers under the rule of Jesus Christ. And since that time, the Lord has greatly blessed the church by adding new individuals and families to our fellowship, by broadening the scope of our ministries, by strengthening our faith, and by granting to us a growing love for Him and a passion to make His excellencies known throughout the world. Faith Community Church continues to be a firmly committed to the Bible and its authority over our lives. And therefore, we are compelled to display God's glory through the exposition of and the thorough application of the truth of Scripture. We teach because we want you to act. We want you to apply the truths that you hear here here, and to spur you to action, to love and to good deeds. We sing the songs that we sing because we want you to be theologically driven to who God is and to be able to worship God and to praise Him. In the Sunday school classes and in the nursery classes, we direct the children to Jesus Christ, to continually share with them the gospel, to share with them who Christ is, and to proclaim God's greatness. Whether it's counseling classes or faith training institute, the youth and college ministries, the various community groups that we have around the church, or prayer groups, or men's and women's groups, or play groups, or whatever it is, and the meals ministries, there are different functions that this church is exercising in different ways, the way that God has manifested his gifts to each believer. And we are to continue to do these things because they are grounded in the truth that God has given us great riches. He has given us a new function, a new distinction. He's given us a new obligation so that we may proclaim His excellencies so we can become better ambassadors, better disciple makers, and better proclaimers of His greatness. Let us pray. We thank You, God, that You have given us so many gifts and exercised them in so many ways that we are not all alike, but when we come together that we can do great things and that You have not just gifted us here in this body, but in bodies all throughout the country, all throughout the world, and that it is Your desire that we are to Help make your glories known to proclaim your greatness for the sole purpose that others would be drawn to you. Lord, help us in this task. And Lord, may we be spurred to action as we hear your word. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.